0: Welcome to episode 8 of the Plant Witch Podcast. I've been working on an assignment for a course I'm taking through the Northern Appalachian School of Vitalist Herbalism and Ecology. We've been profiling local toxic plants, studying their phytoconstituents, which is the chemicals that sort of make up their particular um, smell and medicine and the energy that they bring to the ecosystem and to the human body. And we've been learning about their mechanisms of toxicity. As I research the toxins within the plants Atropa belladonna and Deterra stramonium, two local um, plants that are good to know if you're a forager and uh, someone who's in the wild a lot, as you may come across them. As I was researching the toxins, they are anticholinergic compounds, which means that they have an effect on the central nervous system in a way that um, can be hallucinogenic, and ultimately very deadly. These compounds are known as atropine, siamine, and scopolamine. And as I read those names, I realized I had used these as medicines in my work as a hospice nurse. These toxic compounds were distilled into tiny, dosages that I was able to use to ease the symptoms of the dying. These plants whose medicine can end a life can also bring ease in the transition out of this life when used very carefully and in finely tuned dosages. The same plants that can walk us to the threshold of death with their toxicity can ease us across that same threshold gently when used with great care. In this episode, I'll be deeply discussing the art of dying, the wisdom of the body as it dies, and what I have learned from the dying. If you are in an acute period of grief, this episode may bring up intense or uncomfortable feelings for you. We don't need to be afraid of these feelings, but please proceed with listening only if you know that you are ready and able to encounter graphic depictions of the process of dying and also to be invited into inquiry around your own. We don't need to be afraid of these feelings. But please proceed with listening only if you know that you are ready to encounter graphic depictions of the process of dying, and to be invited into inquiry around your own inevitable death. If you find feelings emerging from this podcast that you need help processing, I will offer some great resources at the end of the podcast and in the show notes. In my work with the dying as a hospice nurse, work I deeply loved, I learned so much from these wise and brave people. When people are dying and their symptoms are well-managed, which was my main role as a hospice nurse, the dying person has the energy to look at the wholeness of life and the sharp contrast of its imminent and ultimate closure. From this vantage point, clarity is stark, raw, profound, and refreshing. The dying don't usually play games. There's nothing left to gamble with. Their energies prioritize between the essentials, and the essentials shift in more or less predictable patterns as death approaches. If there's enough time, the dying person is able to get their affairs in order. They plan their memorial service or funeral, tie up loose ends financially, leave a legacy. Some of my most fond memories were helping to capture stories that lived only inside the dying person so that they could be passed on into the memory of their families. We copied recipes, wrote letters, identified ancestors and old pictures. These were tender and beautiful moments that I was honored to be present for. Several military veterans in our care were able to receive honors from their branch of the armed forces. We had time, time to help the dying person see how their lives made an impact on the life of others, how they mattered, how they would be remembered. Once the dying process begins, Actively, there isn't energy for this type of thing. In fact, even eating becomes an impossible expenditure of energy. The body uses a lot of calories for digestion, so simple carbohydrates, which are the easiest to digest in small quantities, usually soft and cold, would be their staples. Jello, Italian ice, slushies, that sort of thing. Now, the dying person moves away from the outside world, and withdraws to a very few close people. This inner circle will usually dwindle further to one or two people by the end, the ones who are the most committed, the most intimate, and the most able to hold the kind of sanctity and dignity required for this transition. As the, b- the body begins its release of the vital force, the process we call dying, the dying person becomes very quiet, but they may have vivid and lively conversations with people and beings that we cannot see. This often begins during sleep, but becomes a regular occurrence in waking hours. The room becomes full of beings who the dying person doesn't usually know, save for a special visit from their parents, or siblings, or a trusted friend. These unknown watchers take position around the room, often sitting on the frames of hanging pictures, or on shelves near the ceiling, or other odd locations. They don't have expressive faces, they don't smile, or frown, or talk. They just watch, day and night. And the dying person does not have a shred of fear in the presence of this room full of unknown watchers. It is such a strange thing to behold, and I have seen this exact same scenario play out dozens of times. There's actually a great book about this if you want to learn more. It's called Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms by David Kessler. The dying will also begin to visit beautiful places in their dreams. Mountain lakes are the most common for the dying people I've had the privilege to accompany. Angelic beings appear. I've been sitting on the edge of the bed of a dying person, taking their blood pressure, while they are casually conversing with an angel over my shoulder, astonished that I can't see them. That angelic being is so real to the dying person. The veil between this world and the other world is completely transparent. One occurrence I will never forget happened around November 11th, many years ago. We were honoring veterans for their service. A man who was in the active phase of dying and who had been completely deaf for many years was receiving honors from fellow soldiers in arms. With his eyes closed and a single tear released from the corner of his eye. His closed eye. He slowly lifted his hand in salute to the attendant armed forces members. There's no way he should have known they were there. We were all astonished and felt that we had experienced a true miracle. Within the last 24 to 48 hours of life, many dying people will experience a burst of energy. People who've been unresponsive will sit up and take a small meal, often their favorite food. They will ask to speak to someone in particular, to tell a particularly important story, or inquire about the lives of people they haven't seen in a while. During this period of time, the dying person is radiant, glowing, almost saint-like. Usually, this small burst of energy only lasts a few hours or maybe a day, And then the final walk across the veil begins. They go within themselves completely, not to emerge again. They will no longer talk, but will often continue watching the ceiling, as if looking into another place or seeing something beautiful. A smile comes across their lips and joy is in their eyes. In the last hours, the dying person takes a posture that resembles the cocoon phase of the caterpillar's life. Their head tips back slightly, chin pointing toward the ceiling, the ears pinned back against the sides of the head. Breathing becomes rapid and shallow and sometimes raspy or gurgly. This is the point where I would have used hyoscyamine, scopolamine, or atropine for the dying person, those toxic plant alkaloids. From Belladonna. The skin color of the dying person begins to change from pale to gray and mottled with blotches of blue and purple. Their heart rate increases and so does their body temperature. The body does this reliably in just this predictable way when it's allowed to die well and with support. I have watched this exact process unfold hundreds of times. Just as the human body knows how to be born with support, it knows how to die with support. It is such an honor to behold a good death. I won't overly romanticize the dying process, and I hope that I haven't. There can be, and I have seen, uncontrolled pain and suffering, especially when the dying person is young or has a particularly devastating illness. Or, when death comes on very quickly. I've attended a handful of truly horrible deaths, but only a handful out of the hundreds of deaths that I've had the honor to experience. The very large majority were simple, peaceful, uneventful, or powerfully beautiful. When I first started my work as a spiritual director, eight, or 10 years ago now, I used to ask people to rehearse their dying. If we can glimpse these final moments, see our inner circle of support, the people in our lives who will change our sheets, wipe our lips, keep our bodies clean while playing our favorite music. It might help us grasp what is truly important in this life. If we imagine eating our favorite last meal on that rally day right before the final walk across the veil, perhaps we'll have the insight into the importance of the taste of food and the gift of hunger and the incredible freedom that we have every day that we are not dying. When we practice dying, we unlock the gift of living, the gift of full and complete presence and gratitude without wasting time and taking pleasure for granted. I look around us and I see how we are so locked into our suffering, so rigid in our thinking, ready to attack and blame others. We're so busy being angry that we can't taste the sweetness of the apple or appreciate the softness of our sheets or melt into the touch of our lovers. For so many of us, we don't comprehend the inherent ecstasy packed into each moment we spend alive and well until we are sick and dying. I left hospice partly because I wanted to find a way to bring that kind of clarity into the lives of people who were living and would likely be living for many more years. I loved working with the dying, but I wasn't convinced that we couldn't offer the same kind of care and compassion and dignity to people who weren't facing terminal illness. What might happen if we were supported in examining and appreciating our lives before we were counting our days? What might happen if we acknowledge the other world filled with the watchers and the angels and the deceased loved ones? before we clearly see them through the thinning veil. How might our lives be different? How might our deaths be different? For all of the brave men and women who died well, I've heard from so many of their children about the gift of participating in a good death. Seeing their mother or father die peacefully, fully connected to their spiritual beliefs, supported by a loving community, did so much to erase their own fear of dying and to give them permission to more fully live. Just a hundred years ago, we were all very connected to dying in practical ways. Our loved ones died in the houses we lived in. We cleaned and prepared their bodies for burial. The body would lay in the house for a few days to receive visitors and be prayed over and cared for. We weren't sheltered from the reality of death any more than we were sheltered from the reality of birth and the reality of disease and the realness of life. This closeness with death didn't guarantee that we would live a more grateful or complete life, but it gave us more of a chance and more wholeness. I invite you to imagine your own death. Bring to mind that mysterious quality that magical silence and sanctity that surrounds the dying person. If you've ever been in the room with a dying person, you'll know what I mean. Maybe the windows are open and a gentle breeze blows through the curtains. Flowers are sitting all around the room, gifts from loved ones as a physical representation of their mourning and their care. Look back over your life Who would be in your inner circle? Who would be tending to you? Who would be there to guide you across the threshold into the mystery? What beings from beyond the veil would come to shepherd you? A spiritual being, a deity, an ancestor, an animal friend gone too soon? What do you hope and wish and believe about the mystery beyond. What legacy will you leave behind for those you know and love, for the earth and her creatures? What will this life have meant to the greater web of all life? If you have the energy and the willingness, imagine your memorial service. What music is playing? Where is the venue? How is your body cared for? I encourage you to write these things down. It is never too early to plan for our wishes to be followed. And it is never too early to show love and gratitude to the people who will care for us when no one else can. It's never too early to deeply appreciate all that we leave behind at the end of this life. As a former hospice nurse, I deeply believe that we don't talk about these things enough. A few years ago, Julia Butterfly Hill, an environmental activist, wrote a piece about looking at the natural world like a dying loved one. She had begun to imagine that we have failed, that we could not stop climate change, that we could not stem the tide of mass extinction and ecological collapse, She embraced knowing that barring a miracle, the world as we know it is dying, and she will tend to it lovingly, just as she would any beloved that was in the terminal phase of life. Her writing stirred me to my core. If our world truly is in the terminal stage, I want it to have hospice care. I want it to be tenderly loved. I want to see the beauty The majesty, the significance of each creature. I want to ensure that the dignity of this world is retained, even if I can't stop the inevitable. It is, in my view, the best way to live in these times. Instead of being lost in my anger and my righteousness, I'm lost in love and grief. The holiest places in this world, the places where the powers draw nearest to us. If you or someone you love is nearing the end of life with a terminal illness, I cannot recommend hospice care highly enough. Even if the prognosis is many months or a year, meeting with hospice early in the diagnosis can help smooth this transition And manage unpleasant symptoms. Research has proven that starting hospice early does not shorten survival rates and in many cases actually prolongs survival. My love of this world, my love of the wisdom of the dying person, my love of the mystery, and my gratitude for even the smallest and most mundane parts of life are all foundational pieces of what guide me in my work and in my life every single day. For more information about hospice care in the United States, check out the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization or the NHPCO and you can find them at nhpco.org. If you find that you have a lot of feelings coming up and some uncomfortable ones, or if you've been stirred in a way around this topic, I highly recommend finding a qualified spiritual director to help hold space for you to explore this more deeply. Spiritual Director International has a catalog of qualified spiritual directors. You can find them at sdicompanions.org. That's sdicompanions.org. If you're feeling emotions that are too overwhelming to wait for an appointment, please call for help at the National Suicide Hotline, 800-273-8255, that's 800-273-8255, or make an appointment with your chosen care provider. I don't wanna leave you without resources, and yet, I don't want to tiptoe around these impactful topics for fear of touching dark places in us. That fear of touching our dark places is what keeps us stuck in the loops of suffering that we've created for ourselves. We are powerful beyond measure. We are suffused with the wisdom and brilliance of this world. The diamonds that exist within the dark corners that we are taught to avoid are worth being uncomfortable so that we can retrieve them.